the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? All right, higher side chatters, we've heard about many of the tricks the 19th century robber barons and wealthy industrialist families have used to shoehorn society into a profitable path for their nefarious few. Things like defunding and suppressing the work of Nikola Tesla, engineering the Prohibition era to remove alcohol as a fuel option, crafting a school system designed to command obedience to the management class, buying and bearing a plethora of energy-advancing patents, and of course sinking the Titanic to destroy their political opponents and trap America in the net of the Federal Reserve's debt-based system of rule. But that's not all, folks. It seems the more we examine this worrisome window of time, the more connections we find to the way society has been shaped and manipulated to serve these petroleum profiteers above all else. And lucky for us, this very subject has been the life's work of today's guest, Kenneth Price, Ken reached out to me after hearing John Hamer discussing the Titanic conspiracy on THC and told me he thinks there is a bit more to the story behind sinking the unsinkable ship, that it might also parallel the great Hindenburg disaster, and that both of these events seem to be key pieces in the forced petroleum dependence puzzle. Ken has made his case in an amazing yet-to-be-released 400-plus page expose entitled Titanic and Hindenburg, Two Tragedies, One Plan, that's bound to blow minds. And I'm psyched to be able to go over it with him today. Mr. Price, good sir. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you very much, Greg. It's just a great honor to be here. Just a super pleasure. I'm so appreciative that you found interest in this and were willing to give me a shot at this incredible story. Oh, man. Well, thanks for being here. I am so glad you got in touch with me because as a conspiracy guy, I'm really fascinated with the industrial era because it seems like the key time period where we can trace a lot of our current control system back to and where we see the wealthiest elite families really cement themselves at the top of the food chain. But before we get too deep, I wanted to ask you how this became such a preoccupation for you. I mean, the book talks about a lot of technical details and added aspects that suggests you have a lot of knowledge in this area. Since this is your first time talking publicly about these things, I believe, tell us a bit about how you got here. Did you work in the industry? Well, yes, I did. I worked in the oil industry, and maybe that's a, a key component of understanding exactly you know, what's going on here with the Titanic and also the Hindenburg. So I, I had that background. You know, I know the industry is shady from the beginning. I, I pretty much learned that after working for them for 14 years. Hmm. So I had that as a background, but it was in 1985, I was driving around in the Bay Area, I was coming back from a job, and I heard that they had found the Titanic, and it was in two pieces, and I just thought, boy, that is just so unusual. So that's kind of where I started, and I continued to ponder and research the Titanic, but it wasn't really until 2005 when there was a, another discovery made by an independent group of divers called Chatterton and Kohler. They uh, financed a dive by themselves, and they managed to find some pieces of the 
hull of the Titanic. Now, this is right from the very bottom of the hull, slightly aft of midships, right underneath the engines, two gigantic pieces that go from port to starboard. And there's two pieces, and each one of them is approximately the same length of about 30 feet. Taken together, they represent 5,400 square feet of whole bottom. Now, when I say whole bottom, we're talking really two bottoms because the Titanic had a double bottom. It had a one-inch layer of thick steel on the very bottom, and then it had ribs that were five feet tall, and then it had another layer of one-inch thick steel on top of that. From the sides came up from there at half-inch all the way up the sides, you know, 80, 90 feet worth of sides, and then it had nine decks, and those were all half-inch thick steel. To make a long story short, I think any metallurgist out there, any person who's really a good welder or knows steel or has worked with steel, when I tell them this, they're going to know I'm, I've got a good point because these pieces <laughs> came out from corner to corner. Now, how do you pull a corner out of a sheet of steel? How are you going to pull that so you can pull a, a right angle out of a piece of plate steel? Hmm. And the fact of the matter is that steel, it might bend and it will sort of stretch and it will eventually break. But to tear it is just almost impossible because it requires so much force as it yields. You know, it stress relieves itself as you're stretching it. So mm -hmm. you have to continue to pull the load. You have to continue, continue, continue. And it is just unreal to try and tear steel. Mm -hmm. Now, how how do we end up with these pieces that are literally square? And not only that, but there's two layers. There's a layer on the top and a layer on the bottom, and the cut lines are lined up, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's cut athwart ships, in other words, crosswise to the ship, on the bottom two layers, and it's cut in three places. And normally, you'd have failure occur in one place. When something fails, a beam, a column, whatever, fails in one place, the Titanic failed, has three points of failure, total lines of failure along the bottom. Now, this is getting a little hard to take because let's go back to the original story where the Titanic struck an iceberg on the starboard side. Mm -hmm. This is how it is written up in the United States disaster hearings. It's also written up that way in the British Board of Trade hearings that were held after the Titanic disaster. And both of them, this is written into their hearings that the cause of the Titanic sinking was 300 feet of damage done along the starboard side of the bow such that five compartments had to flood hmm. in order for the Titanic to sink because it had 16 water tight compartments. So it had to receive damage at least, say, 260, 270 feet. So it went into that fifth compartment as well as the bow and the floor back from there. Hmm. And it would have needed to tear. Now, there's done a lot of calculations of how big of a hole was in the Titanic so that it would sink in only 160 minutes. And by the way, that's another phenomenal 
statistic is that how how this ship could have ever sank that fast when any old mail steamer of that day took at least five five and a half hours to sink and that was even with a catastrophic like collision from another ship so there's a red flag how did the titanic go down so fast Mm -hmm. now it had to have at least a 20 foot square hole this has been calculated by marine architects that it would have needed totally 20 square feet of hole in order to sink in 160 minutes so that would mean that each compartment needed to have four square feet of area damage to each compartment. And they had to be kind of equal because otherwise one compartment might not have filled fast enough to get that bow down into the water low enough, quickly enough, so that you could, you know, get the ship to continue sinking and get her underwater in 160 minutes. So we're already starting from a really, really, difficult story Hmm. to swallow in the first place. And then we have the testimony of Charles Lightoller, who was the number one witness as to the Titanic sinking. And he even wrote down on a piece of paper because he watched it sink. And so he wrote it down, slipping majestically straight down. There's no, no explosions, no breaking, no stern breaking off, anything like that. He wrote that down and he presented that at the British Board of Trade and also the Senate disaster hearings in the United States. Hmm. That's what's written into the final court hearings. So I, I also found it really odd that in 1997, when they came out with this movie with the stern breaking off, what gave them the right to just totally disregard the results of two hearings <laughs> that had been held on the Titanic. But that's exactly what they did. And they, they didn't mention a thing about that. They sort of, in a way, pulled the hood over our eyes by starting the new 1997 movie out on the bottom, like it was some kind of a scientific documentary. Mm -hmm. You know, we were were right down with them while they were looking at all of the wreckage and the damage, and it really impressed me. I thought, boy, they're really getting to the bottom of the story here. They brought this old person, you know, who was (laughs) actual survivor, and they really took us for a ride. But I'm telling you, The reason they made that movie is because they found that boat on the bottom in two pieces and they had to come up with an explanation because the pieces are 2,270 feet apart, which means this ship not only separated into two completely separate pieces, but it did so at the surface because otherwise they could have never hit the bottom nearly a half mile apart where they lie today. Hmm. So interesting, man. And yeah, so I guess seeing these pieces at the bottom of the ocean, this throws a huge wrench in the iceberg narrative. It couldn't do that. And I guess it suggests some sort of demolition, would you say, or somehow just letting the ship fall apart premeditatively? Well, (laughs) it's interesting you said fall apart. Because that's exactly what they're trying to get us to believe, that the ship fell apart. And by the way, there's two sister ships to the Titanic. There's the Olympic, which stayed in service until 1934. It worked fine. Then there's the Britannic, which was turned into a hospital ship. And it was sunk, I think, before the war was over, right toward the end of the war. It was sunk. By the way, the Britannic watertight doors are not down. 
I spent a long time trying to confirm that. And since I mentioned that, add that the Titanic's watertight doors, I have looked everywhere for a picture or some testimony that those watertight doors are in fact down. And I haven't been able to confirm that. But I did confirm that the watertight doors on the Britannic, which was a hospital ship, those doors were never deployed. So what's going on here? I'm not sure. They like to blow up steamships because they're incredibly efficient. Let me give you an idea just how efficient they are. This is some recent information. I should have maybe put this right at the front of my book as to what's going on here. But let me explain why the oil industry despises steam power. Sure. It's because with steam power, you could run it off anything that will burn. You just need to boil water. Okay. You don't need some exotic fuel that's going to go through a carburetor and be compressed in an engine and not leave a deposit and, you know, have all these properties that they sell us on. All you need is something that will burn. Well, coal is that substance. Now, coal on a per pound basis doesn't have as much energy, but on a per liter basis, coal has the same amount of energy per liter as petroleum. So you're really going to a solid fuel. When you go from petroleum to coal, you're actually going to a solid fuel, which in a way is more advanced than liquid. I know that might sound odd, but do you realize how easy it is to handle coal as opposed to handling a toxic liquid that anytime there's a leak goes into the ground? You know, if you spill coal, you scoop it up and no big deal. Right. I wanted to throw this in here real quick. In your book, I wrote this down where you say, Coal can be mined straight out of the ground and dumped into a furnace, which produces steam, which runs a turbine, which powers an electrical grid system, which propels cars at 300 miles per hour that get 300 miles per gallon and never has accidents. Therefore, petroleum-derived fuel represents no progress at all beyond coal fuel. And uh, that's an important point because we're propagandized so heavily to think coal is dirty, unsafe, rudimentary, and that seems to be heavy manipulation from the oil industry to a degree, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's what I I was trying. Well, how how efficient were these ships? Well, the Titanic used about 600 tons per day of coal, 600 tons. Wow, that sounds enormous. Okay. It took five days to go from Ireland to New York, five days times 600 tons a day would be 3,000 tons of coal, right? Mm -hmm. And if the Titanic hauled 3,000 passengers, divided that into the coal, you'd have each passenger requiring a ton of coal to get from Ireland or from, say, England to New York. Are you with me? I'm with you. One ton of coal. It sounds, oh, man, gosh, that sounds like, oh. Well, from 1908 to 1913, Coal was $1 a ton, commercial price. Wow. So you could move a human being with a cabin and steam heat and eating lobster and drinking cappuccino at 22 knots in total safety. And that's what really this book is all about. We were totally safe, but they convinced us we were not safe. And that's part of where it comes into the Hindenburg, where they got us to go into this flimsy aviation industry. But these coal ships, they're just engineering marvels because you could move a person across the ocean for a buck. Hmm. So you can see why oil, big oil, hates steam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And to get into uh, the point you just made a little further, you do say, never forget the Titanic went down at the dawn of aviation travel. Her publicized failure impacted future developments of transportation mechanisms for decades afterwards. Tell us a bit more about how important it is for people to really understand this context. Well, this is where it gets hard to explain because, you know, the coal ship didn't just disappear overnight. But if you look at it today, if you look at what ships are powered by today, you'd absolutely be floored because they've gone back to reciprocating engines. I am not kidding you. They've gone back to where we're using piston engines. They've got (laughs) – you can look at these things. They're so proud of them. They're 110,000 horsepower, 14 cylinders. The cylinders are six feet in diameter and have like a 10-foot stroke. You know, (laughs) the engine weighs – She's something like uh, 2,000 tons. They're just gigantic engines, and they they have very sophisticated fuel systems on them, you know. So they're about 1% or 2% more efficient than a diesel engine from 1920. They are a little more efficient than a diesel engine from that era. But the fuel is so much more expensive than coal, it, it just doesn't make any difference. So most most ships today are either running off like heavy fuel oil or they're running off of liquefied natural gas. That's another one they're using Hmm. because that's a little bit cheaper than running on fuel oil. But there's almost no ships out there running on coal. And that's that's really, really sad because, you know, when you burn coal at sea, you know, or that ash, it just is going to land on the water and it's going to sink to the bottom and it's not going to cause any kind of a environmental hazard really at all. That's where you should be burning coal is out there on the open ocean. And to have gone back to where we're running on this expensive petroleum product and, you know, the engines are very sophisticated, but it's just the same design. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're not efficient overall. They're not efficient at all. A steam engine gets four strokes of power for every one stroke of a combustion-type engine that's a four-stroke engine. It will only fire every other stroke, whereas a steam engine, it's firing every stroke, not firing, it's, it's being pressurized. It's also pressurized on both sides of the piston. So literally, a one-cylinder steam engine has the same amount of push as a four-cylinder gasoline engine. Hmm. Wow, man. And you also have some amazing stats in the book along this line that show just how much money they've been raking in and how effective they've been. For example, you say, let's take a look at the Los Angeles International Airport. In 2012, there were roughly 600,000 flights, which provided travel for 63 million passengers. If each flight consumed about half the fuel tank capacity, or 25,000 gallons, that would equate to 15 billion gallons consumed in 2012. That's 15 billion gallons from just one airport. And you also note the average American pays about 5,000 a year in gasoline costs. And when you know these numbers, you can see how the oil monopoly has been just as important for them as fractional reserve banking in terms of extracting wealth from every person in the system. And it's just pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? Boy, what a money-making venture. And it's got tentacles that go out into everything. And we wear it as a yoke. We wear the petroleum industry as a yoke of servitude. Everything we do, 
they make money off mm. every time we move somewhere you know it's even plastics and pharmaceuticals are oil based oh they love to use oil based components in the pharmaceuticals anywhere they can mm-hmm. and uh, that includes fluoride amen like to get rid of that and put that in our pharmaceuticals so to hop back to the larger story here so you build up this titanic ship as a modern marvel you sink it in dramatic fashion use the media to maximize the trauma and drill into people's heads how terrible a disaster it was and steer them into the more profitable modes of transportation and this brings us to the hindenburg because it's a very similar story it turns out but i think people know far less about it and about the use of these retired airships in general it's a pretty fascinating chapter what can you tell us about the hydrogen airships at the time and uh, how they were being used. Well, thanks. I can tell you a lot. Most people know very little about airships because they want to keep them a secret. Mm -hmm. What we see today as an airship is kind of an inflated balloon. It's nothing like what an airship was during the golden era of the Graf Zeppelin, which went into service in 1928 and did regular transatlantic service from Frederikshafen to Rio de Janeiro. So you're living in Germany in 1928. You could take a trip to Rio and you'd be flying 500 feet off the ground and watching whales and dolphins. And the experience was so pleasurable. You know, you had a table to eat at, you had a cabin to rest in, and it was just a wonderful experience. Hmm. And it's a wonderful form of travel. And it totally gets us out of the ocean. It gets us up into the air where we don't have seasickness and the such worry of, you know, hitting reefs and things like that. So it's really a very efficient form of transportation because it did utilize a form of anti-gravity. And this is what people don't realize what was going on here is that this device did not have to lift itself. You know, its total weight was 500,000 plus pounds. To get that 500 feet in the air, all you had to do is release the mooring line, okay? Hmm. And it's going up. And that's how these started out. They released the mooring line. They let the ship ascend 500 feet, and they started the engine, and off they went. So all you're doing is pushing a tube, a streamlined tube through the air. You're not, you don't have to use any power to keep it aloft. You're just pushing it. And so these were extremely efficient. And not only that, but the Hindenburg had diesel engines. Hmm. Now, <laughs> diesel engines, you notice that we don't have them in very many of our cars today. We have mostly gasoline engines, even like the Prius, which should be as a super efficiency, you know, hybrid supposedly. They don't even put a diesel in that. Now, I might add that the Prius won't even outperform a European diesel-powered car. Sorry for all you Prius owners, but (laughs) it is very easy to make a diesel engine twice as efficient as a gasoline engine. You know, it starts because the compression is more than double. And it also is an engine that can run – it can run lean, whereas you have to always run gasoline-rich. That's a whole problem with gasoline. So – where was I? We're getting into fuel consumption with the Hindenburg. The fact that it was diesel powered, it consumed 200 gallons per hour. Hmm. This 500,000 pound aircraft only consumed 
200 gallons per hour that could reach New York with only going through like 10,000 gallons of fuel, which was just a fraction of its payload. When you look at transportation today, the existing fixed wing jet powered transportation system, they're always hauling about five, six, seven times more weight and fuel than they are cargo because they're losing all the weight as they reach their destination. Hmm. But <laughs> the existing jet powered system is extremely inefficient compared to what the Hindenburg was and the Graf Zeppelin. Now, Graf Zeppelin had nine years of trouble-free service. Nobody was ever hurt. There was no accidents. And it logged over 18 million miles of service. The Hindenburg was in service for one year prior to 1937 when it was burned. And it had 34 successful transatlantic crossings in 1936. And it was like a one-off prototype. Hmm. And it was put into service after just a couple of test trials. And it went on to make 34 transatlantic crossings without incident. So, I mean, it was, uh, it was a wonderfully engineered aircraft and very, very fuel efficient. Right. You say in the book that the truth about the Hindenburg is that it was the most fuel efficient and luxurious aircraft ever built at the time, capable of flying halfway around the world without stopping. It is so interesting to hear that. I mean, how long did it take? How fast did it go? It took a couple of days, I guess. Uh, it took three days to get from England. So it shortened that transatlantic crossing to three days. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It shortened it to 50 hours. Excuse oh, me. Oh, okay. The, the fastest steamship was the USS United States, and it, it eventually got down to three and a half days. Hmm. They were doing about 30-something knots. People listening might think, well, this sounds all right. I mean, but it is still much slower. But you even tie in the fact that these industrialists who kind of run the working man's world, I mean, when they only give you two weeks a year for vacation, you need to get somewhere quickly. But back in this day, I mean, people could have a more luxurious vacation and get in one of these airships and have a little sky cruise of, with great scenery, with big cabins. Right. And it's, you know, a lot more luxurious experience rather than jamming people in like sardines oh, totally. and throwing them across. Totally. But it's just, uh, it's such a different paradigm than the way we experience things today or the way we think about travel in general. Yeah, look what they've gradually devolved us into, you know, to where we sit in these giant long tubes where everybody has their own little computer screen and we're all in isolation. Whereas before we were all socializing, we we're having dinner together and, and looking out windows together and having a great time, even dancing aboard the Hindenburg to their piano. Hmm. And we have a right to live like this. We earned this. We designed these things and they were successful designs. The Titanic was a successful design. No way in a thousand collisions would that ship have ever sank from hitting an iceberg. I mean, I just... Is no that thing was built so solid, and all of those wonderful factory workers at the Harlan Wolf shipyard that sent that ship off and were told that oh your ship just came apart. All those men who were led to believe that somehow this incredible iron ship came apart at sea, they were so deceived, and the the whole world was deceived over this. Look, we were good engineers. That ship was a very 
very well-designed ship. They ended up convincing us we were trying to leap too far into luxury. <laughs> it was too big. And it was too good. And third class actually had a dining room and they had an entertainment room. In third class, you could get a room with four people or with eight people. I mean, it was just the most wonderful thing for for third class that ever came along. Mm. You were totally safe, totally, totally safe. Huh. Uh, they made us think that you weren't because, and this is another kind of strange part, but the part about the rich that were aboard the Titanic going down with a ship where they got us to believe that they're every bit as civil as we are and, you know, they have the same kinds of feelings about third-class people and they're willing to drown side by side with them, holding hands, you know, right. if that's the way it is. And that's not the way it went. <laughs> and that's a reason why I believe that within five years there will be a new investigation, a complete new Justice Department hearing on what actually caused the Titanic to be sunk. Right. Because there is so much information now, and they've put it all in front of us. Watch the History Channel 2015, where they've mapped everything out. You can see every piece. It's all there, and it's three miles wide, and it's five miles long. I don't know if you looked at those other drawings I showed you from the Wormhole or Wormwood site, but the center section of the cabins were blown apart in a line that went in. In other words, there was, there was a way to make the parts of the ship go sideways, not just breaking lengthwise. It also broke the other way. Those pieces completely left the ship hmm. in a, a giant midsection of the ship. Now, how do, how do you get the ship to split right down the middle in the midships? direction, you know, bow to uh, stern, how do you get it to split along a line right down the middle of the ship? Hmm. But that's exactly what they've found and they've documented. And you can look in the drawings. It's called a tear diagram and it shows every deck how they were split. It's just incredible the number of pieces that came off that ship. It's pretty obvious. Seems like it parallels 9-11 a little bit where we're led to believe that a plane flying into one of these massive skyscrapers was enough to completely demolish it to the ground. We're told in this case that an iceberg destroyed this thing when really that's just not believable. Right. Hmm. And to step back to the thing you said about the passengers and the nobility of the first class passengers sacrificing themselves for the women and children, it turns out that's not the case. They didn't even sound the alarm for third-class right. passengers. All the first-class people got the hell out of there before any of the peons got a chance. And that really shocked me. I got that out of Alan Kuhn's book on the Titanic disaster hearings, which came out in 1994. And if researchers would start with that book, instead of thinking about rivets and coal fires and things like that, there's something major wrong when, you, when they get to the part about the testifying and this number one witness admits that the third class never heard an alarm. They, they never, were never given alarm. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's pretty shocking. 156 women and children went down 
supposedly went down. That's another story. I don't know if you read that part about the missing bones. Yes. We'll get into that later. <laughs> that was going to be my next question for you, for sure. Definitely on, on the subject. Tell us about the fact. I mean, it is interesting. There's been dozens of dives down there. They brought back hundreds of items, but no skeletons have ever been found, which is an element that comes into play with a lot of researchers who talk about these things that are considered to be false flags to induce trauma on the masses, usually through the media. Or usually researchers find evidence to suggest that there really aren't as many victims in these tragedies as the story wants you to believe. And maybe that's an element here with the Titanic as well. Absolutely it is. I mean, I can give you one example. Captain Smith, he was seen after the Titanic went down. He was even in a Life magazine article. You can read the Life magazine article. It's called Smitty, the missing captain, they called him Smitty. He was living around Philadelphia as this old man who was on the verge of, you know, I guess he was homeless. They called him old Smitty. So they, they apparently knew who he was. And he had to, he's got a map of the world tattooed on his back. And then he had tattoos on a lot, a lot of marks. Okay. And they embalmed his body so that they could later identify who this stranger was and so his body is still to this day embalmed and if you go go there you can maybe even get a look at it now why why would any city embalm a stranger you know since when do they embalm a stranger so that they can hopefully identify it later right have you ever heard of that that's very strange and you also talk about the idea that you know, if there's no skeletons found, where are the people? What happened to the people? Uh, and you talk about the idea that they could have been sold into slavery. How likely could that have been at this time period? Well, how much would they have been worth? Right off the bat, a, a red flag, when you're talking 156 women and children, children are worth a lot of money. Mm. You know, you know about the uh, the child slave market. That's the dark truth. And then you've got women that are missing, too. And then you've got all these other men who could have become laborers or slaves. It would be absolutely no problem to just say, hey, get on this ship. We're taking you to New York. Get aboard. You get on board, and next thing you know, you're in Africa or somewhere else or Russia. Hmm. Right. You mentioned that Russia was big in the slave trading at that time. It was still going on worldwide, and it's still going on today. Right. I mean, not worldwide, but it was it was still prevalent in a lot of areas of the world. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been hard to find a market. And it would have been some extra cash, just like the gold that was aboard and the diamonds that are aboard. And you have a very hard time finding where the gold and the diamonds went. I don't know if anybody has, has gotten that from the Ballard expeditions or any of these other expeditions. Has anybody brought up any gold or diamonds? Right. I would guess that that was all removed before they blew the thing up. Very likely. And since people know quite a bit less about the Hindenburg story, let's get into that a bit more in the first hour here. What are some of the elements that make the case that its destruction was a premeditated false flag and not the accident that we're told it was? Well, the main thing that makes it premeditated is the fact that it was a very political instrument of Germany. The Nazi party, they confiscated the Hindenburg just as it was completed. 
they confiscated it and they painted the tail fins with the swastikas and they named it the Hindenburg. They named it after the last democratic president of Germany. So when the Hindenburg went down in a ball of flames, there was some, you know, symbolism. Yeah, there was some symbolism there with the last democratic chancellor of Germany going down in flames. There was uh, bomb threats a number of times on the Graf Zeppelin and there were bomb threats on the Hindenburg as well. As a result, they had a number of Secret Service people on that flight into Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937 for that very reason, to watch out for an act of sabotage. And then when it happened, to our surprise, the FBI acted like, oh, no, it wasn't sabotage at all. It was an engineering failure. So they they treated it as an engineering failure, and they made only a very weak attempt to find out, to investigate those who would have maybe taken part in a sabotage. They never did treat it as as a possibility. And even the Germans didn't treat it as sabotage. Now, the, the ones who were on the Hindenburg, uh, Rosenthal, who went down with it, and he claimed that there's no other way this went down without sabotage. And the lead engineer felt the same way. But when they got back to Germany and Hitler and Goering said, no, we're just going to just write this off as an accident. The spark went up the line, went up a hemp line because it got some water on it, and it went up and ignited the uh, Hindenburg on fire. Just completely impossible. A hemp line that's wet at just one end. I mean, give me a break. That's going to conduct electricity, and even if it went up the line, How's it going to spark where the hole is? So you'd have to have the hole, if there was a hole, that was right next to where the line was attached to the ship, you know. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. We never got to see the first couple seconds of the footage. I mentioned in there that they had 22 professional photographers. Five of them had newsreel cameras, but none of them managed to get a picture of the first three seconds of when it was actually struck by whatever it was struck by, or maybe there was a bomb set off or something. I believe that it was, according to James Perloff, in his article about de Berg and his crew of men that hid behind bushes and fired one incendiary shell from a rifle into the rear end of it. That's what they testified to doing, and I believe that is the correct story. They were just simply behind the bushes. As far as the way the press presented it, that was way overdone. They had way more photographers there than they needed. There's no doubt they edited out all of the footage. I mean, for 22 professional photographers to miss the shot, you know, where where it actually started burning, that's, that's the worst photographic blunder of all time. I, I can't imagine those guys screwing up worse than that. So their material was edited. They obviously got the pictures that we needed so we could see where the fire started at the stern, but that was all edited out. And then they, I mentioned in there that the Herbert Morrison taped audio transcript of the Hindenburg burning and everybody remembered so well. That was taped and that was spliced into the pictures later, into the, the movie film later. So it was it was not time sequenced since it was spliced together. It didn't all happen together. So we weren't able to really 
scrutinize his actual words with the actual event the way it really happened. What we got is the way they wanted us to see it happen. Hydrogen is not that easy to get to burn. I know people out there go, what? But hydrogen does not burn without oxygen and H2O. So what does that mean? You need one part oxygen, the two parts hydrogen, because that's what it's going to go into. It's going to go into water. That's a reaction anywhere on the planet. When hydrogen combusts, it's got to have one part oxygen to two parts hydrogen. And there's just no way you can get something that's inside of a pure hydrogen gas bag to explode because you can't get air into it. Okay. That was going to be one of the questions I had for you because I was a little confused by that point that it doesn't burn without oxygen. And I was going to say, well, what about the oxygen and the air? But it's a it's a closed uh, compartment, right? Well, the oxygen in the air did allow the Hindenburg to burn. It did burn. Once they fired an incendiary shell through it and got it burning, then the bag is going to release the hydrogen into the air and it just started burning big time. Mm -hmm. And the thing that is really notable about hydrogen, what a wonderful fuel it is, is that it's a gas, not a liquid. It didn't fall down on the people. It went straight up. Right. All the heat from the Hindenburg went straight up and only 36 people were lost on the Hindenburg. Now, 36 people, that's a lot of people. But, you know, we have airliners today that go down with hundreds of people. Right. And they, they don't cancel the design of the airliner. Exactly. And we're still using them with volatile fuel. And when they crash, they still erupt into a ball of flames and everybody is burned mm -hmm. beyond recognition. We still use it. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting because the Hindenburg, it looks epic in scale and the visuals of it are very trauma inducing. But you're right. The gas goes up and the basket underneath was uh, not as affected as, you know, like a plane crash would be. And I just thought that was so interesting. You also note that when a, a typical fire were to break out on one of these airships, they could stop the thing in the air, put it out, float. And then, you know, continue going. Whereas a plane, if uh, a fire breaks out, it's got to land. And that's a very dangerous procedure to land and go back up in the air. But the media has downplayed the dangers of the only alternative they'll give us and then taken these other things that were much safer and overinflated how dangerous they were. And that's one of the real tragedies here. Totally. Totally. That's exactly what they've hmm. done. And it's not so much that. If you get a fire while you're aloft, that, that's, that's really dangerous. Okay. Right. But if you have an engine failure with a dirigible or a lighter than gravity aircraft, if you have an engine failure, total engine failure, you're still safe. You're just floating. It's just like you're a ship at sea and your engine quits. You run out of fuel. You're floating. They don't want us to have a system like that. They want us to have a system where you run out of fuel. You're going down, mm. you know, psychologically, we feel so dependent on fuel. And aren't we, though? Boy, if the jet ever runs out of fuel, what an emergency. Right. So, you know, it's kind of a system that doesn't make a lot of sense alongside these lighter than uh, or anti-gravity craft that are just infinitely so much safer. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing I wanted to try to get into or throw into the first hour before we get deeper into the story. But we have the major cliff notes here. 
And to read another excerpt that gets into other alternatives, you write, Both of these disasters had the effect of steering the public into a transportation system that would require and consume expensive processed petroleum fuels in place of cheaper alternatives. Making these negative trends look positive to the public was the standard mode of operation during the era. Another mind game we have fallen for. Few people can even conjure in their minds that there was actually a 20-year period beginning in 1885 where the best vehicles on the road were electric-powered. The gasoline engine at that stage was a piece of unreliable noisy junk compared to the smooth-riding Riker electric vehicle that was the preferred car of the rich, and steam-powered engines from ships and trains were scaled down such that by 1905, the Stanley Steamer was a reliable, mass-produced car. Early Model Ts were also equipped to burn alcohol as a standard fuel. I find these sorts of things really mind-blowing because, like you say, we have this one idea drilled into our heads— can you tell us any more about early vehicles and the options we had at the time before the oil monopoly was really secured? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Toward the end of the book, you know, we get into Nikola Tesla, which, you know, the most benevolent engineer that's probably ever been on this planet. And he was shut down by J.P. Morgan. Now, he had a system of transportation that was light years ahead. And, and we might be seeing that in the next couple of years, by the way, because... We are getting ready for a transportation revelation in this country. That's why I'm releasing this material now. I think it's a key part of we need to wake up and make sure we don't rebuild the same system that we have where we use asphalt roads, rubber tires. You know, it's just every time we turn around, we're bolstering the petroleum industry. And we got to stop using roads that degrade from sunlight. You know, asphalt is the, the worst material they could have ever come up with for roads. It won't even stand up to sunlight. So as soon as it's laid down, you've already established a renewal clause, an evergreen clause with the oil industry for infinite numbers of topping, retopping, resurfacing. You know, it's just constant windfalls that come toward the oil industry. Right. I love that element, too, that it has a byproduct problem, and that byproduct is asphalt tar, and that's why they use right. it to make the roads. They use it for rubber tires. They use it for roofing shingles. Not that it's the best thing for these these things, but it's just the only option we're allowed. No other way to get rid of it. You, no, no petroleum product is qualified to be thrown away in a landfill. Hmm. If you're going to throw away crude oil, as it comes out of the ground, it's got to go to a toxic waste landfill, which, of course, no industry is stupid enough to try to afford. But they turn around and they use these toxic materials and they make tires that wear everywhere on the planet's surface. That's okay. <laughs> they make fuels out of them that's burned everywhere on the planet's surface. That's okay. But don't throw it away to landfill because the EPA will uh, give you a big hefty fine. You can't do that. It's a toxic material. So we're spreading toxicity everywhere. And that's why we have to get out from under this. I think I also point out in the book that there is a way for us to get out of it overnight. And that's just to convert all of our petroleum cars into alcohol powered cars. Because the, the oil industry with one additional component can convert their gasoline into methanol. They just won't do it. Hmm. They won't do it because they get too much yield. When you combine gasoline with water for the necessary hydrogen and oxygen in order to make the hydrocarbon methanol molecule, 
you end up with four and a half times the amount of gasoline that you started with, you know. Mm-hmm. In other words, one part gasoline, two parts water, about 900 degrees centigrade, high pressure, very, very high pressure equipment, dangerous. You know, it needs to be done by the refinery, not at home. But they have catalytic crackers at the refinery. They could simply design these to crack their fuel into methanol, and they they won't do it hmm. because that would cut our uh, our usage by uh, 80% right right there. And uh, in that paragraph I had read, I mentioned that Stanley Steamer personal vehicle that you wrote about, and it seems so strange, a steam-powered personal vehicle. You know, what, what was that like? How efficient was that? Well, I'm glad you asked because I, uh, I was so interested in this car that I went to the Stanley Steamer Museum, which is in Ethenburg. Oh, I can't remember. Allen's. Well, it's in Colorado. Uh, Estes Park. That's where it's at. There's a Stanley Steamer Museum, and it's got about six or seven of these beautiful Stanley Steamers. They are just wonderful pieces of engineering work. They could run on anything that would burn. They either they usually use gasoline because gasoline, you know, started out as being very cheap. So we all got hooked on it. So you could use gasoline or kerosene or diesel or uh, alcohol, anything that would boil water. And it was a two-cylinder engine. The engine was about, oh, maybe 50 to 100 pounds. You know, if you looked at it compared to a a Model T, a four-cylinder Model T engine, it was a fraction of the weight. Hmm. Now, it also had to have a boiler. But the thing that's neat about the Stanley Steamer is that there's no electrical system required. You could start it with a match. You didn't need a starter motor. You didn't need a clutch. You didn't need a transmission. And that's the beauty of steam. It performs the clutch and the transmission for you. So you're basically always direct drive. You're just opening steam valves. Uh, steam engine has maximum torque at like zero RPM because the steam pressure just keeps building until the device starts to move. Whereas with like a combustion engine, if it doesn't move, the engine just stalls. Just boom, that's it. You got to restart it, rev it up. The steam engine, you just leave it in gear and just let the steam pressure keep building and you start moving. Hmm. I mean, it's wonderful, wonderful power. And the, the Stanley Steamer was, in terms of efficiency, it was about a 15-mile-per-gallon vehicle. Not as efficient as I would have thought, but I know with some refinement, they could have gotten those up to 100 miles per gallon without too much difficulty. <laughs> That's just so interesting. And those electric cars, early electric cars, I'm sure people have in their heads that they were pretty basic and rudimentary, but you say that they were around like 20 years before. I mean, that's 20 years. That's huge. And these were also pretty effective, right? Yes, they were very effective. They even had the battery exchange program by Philadelphia Electric Company. And uh, you basically... Uh, just exchange batteries with them. This went on for, I think, 15 years they had this program. Electric cars are are much easier to construct in these very complicated gasoline engines. Uh, you know, they've got so many potential problems. You know, they want to backfire. They want to run on. They don't want to start. They want to vapor lock. The fuel is has uh, got to be just right or you'll get too much carbon. The valves will stick. The pistons will wear out. It's really 
a lot of engineering went into a really lousy design to get that thing to work at all. <laughs> Whereas when they were starting with electricity, they had a winning design and it would have just gotten better and better and better. Man. And the Riker is just one example. That was one of the ones I picked because it was preferred by the rich because it was, it was so safe. You never ever have to worry about the thing not starting. <laughs> and back in those days, that was a big deal. It's just so interesting to have the whole kind of visual component of what you think that time was flipped on its head. I just love that. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was, and, and I, I give a lot of credit to this internet. You know, I, it's, it's wonderful the way you can fact check stuff without uh, having to go down to the library and, and dig, dig, dig. Right. And that's what I did. I just fact checked everything I could and wrote it down the way it really was. And I think I mentioned that I first wrote a whole other book called The Rise and Stall of the Piston Engine. Mm -hmm. I wrote that book before I even started the Titanic and Hindenburg. So I was already on to the oil industry, something wrong here. And the fact that they promoted the worst possible engine they could have. Now, you mentioned something else about, well, what was going on before that? Before that, as far back as 1796, they'd invented the Stirling engine. And that's, that's a really interesting engine. It's, it's a piston engine with about one fourth of the moving parts of a combustion engine and more efficient and does not need an electric starter, does not need an electric system, does not need an exhaust system and does not need a cooling system. That's the Stirling engine. It's kind of like a gas engine and it just kind of reuses its same gas back and forth from one piston to the other and it, it has a hot end and it has a cold end and what you use to supply heat to the hot end is anything that'll burn anything that'll burn grass clippings hay gasoline sure diesel fuel or you could even use lard anything that'll burn so these these kinds of designs are very much frowned upon they're avoided by the oil industry because they are more efficient right? when it comes to fuel consumption. And that's a great point about the engine, too, because you say that gasoline was formulated to ensure we would never get good gas mileage. You know, that's right. obviously a key component. And the it's coupled with the engine being the most inefficient engine design they could come up with because they got a product to sell and they don't want to just eliminate the alternatives. They want to get the most out of the only option they're going to give us. So fuel efficiency has been you know, basically off the table. And now we talk about it in the last decade or two, but even then it's a snail's pace. Right. Well, and I also mentioned in there that from 1850 on, there was torpedo development that involved all kinds of exotic fuels like hydrazine and hydrogen peroxide and methanol mixed with hydrogen peroxide. These fuels later showed up in Germany in this flying jet plane called the Comet. That was a rocket-powered plane that ran on hydrazine and hydrogen peroxide. They were using these fuels back in 1850 and onward up as they were developing torpedoes, and they never messed with gasoline because it was such lousy fuel. They didn't even mess with it. Hmm. And these were turbine-powered. These torpedoes were extremely powerful and compact, and they were... Building scads of them, it's not because they had so many submarines, but they used them 
for harbor defense. And all you need to do is get a couple of these, put them on a barge within your harbor, and then you could stop a battleship from coming in and wreaking havoc and shelling your city, you know? Mm -hmm. So torpedoes for harbor defense was huge business toward the 1890s, 1900s, right around it there. And it was big business. These were sold all over the world, and there was a lot of technology there. And none of this was ever applied to our car transportation industry, and it didn't go into our aviation industry either. Instead of giving us turbine engines in our World War I planes, they gave us these gigantic rotary engines that, you know, is the most blunt engine design you could possibly come up with. It's just a giant baffle. You know what I'm talking about with a rotary piston engine where you have like nine or 11 cylinders in a circle, mm -hmm. like a Corsair, typical example, Navy Hellcat, things like this. They had these, if you notice, Germans always went to like V8s, V12s. They always put their engines in line and they were water-cooled, but not not us, man. <laughs> we had to use these big, huge radial engines that just consumed huge amounts of fuel to get them to go three, 400 knots. Hmm. Just a gigantic wind baffle going through the air. So we could have applied the uh, torpedo technology, could have gone right into the first war with very compact turbine engines if we had wanted to. But... <laughs> uh, that that was not done. And that is also so interesting because you do write about several aspects of World War II that come into play during this saga. seems to be another pretty big piece of the puzzle and correcting the, the history here. What would you consider some of the important things we should know to get into World War II a little bit further and how it relates to the big story here? Well, World War II was planned. It was a continuation of World War One, which was the, the world's first gigantic petroleum-powered war. Mm -hmm. And World War Two took that to a whole other level. I can't remember the figure in there. I believe it's 500 billion. Yeah, 500 billion gallons of petroleum were consumed <laughs> in World War Two. Jeez. And <laughs> I mean. <laughs> The the profit, you know, this this uh, is was not drilled for and supplied by the the country by the U.S. military. This was purchased from a oil company, right? And not only that, but these oil companies supplied their fuel to the enemy as well as to the Allies, so they could basically play themselves upon each other, you know, with supply demand. I mean, it, it's so there's so many conflicts of interest of business here, governments allowing this to go on. And of course, the only reason they did is because they were part of it. Right. Maybe the, uh, the oil industry was above them, not the other way around. Well, tycoons and bankers, they run the world. They, they got a few more years. <laughs> but it's going to come to an end. It's got to. And they know it. They know it. But it's all out there now. It's all been done and delineated. History will provide the evidence necessary to convict them of what they've done. And a lot of these guys might think they've died and gone off to heaven and gotten away with it, but they haven't. Mm -hmm. That's all going to come out. Yeah. And anybody that's, that's listening to me and, and is getting angry because I'm saying things that are, are kind of blowing their paradigm is, you know, I'm, 
I'm doing this completely free of charge. I've decided I'm not going to try and make a book out of this. I'm not going to try and make a profit. Hmm. I want this material out there. I think the only about <laughs> the only possible defense I have is that I'm I'm going to give this book away for free. Wow. So we can we can give out this website and they can email me and I will send them the first six chapters of this book and they can then get back to me and if they're sincere I'll give them some more but if they want to try and tear me apart but I think I think I can stimulate a lot more research and book writing out there I think people listening to this are going to immediately know just by hearing what I told them about that debris field with regard to the Titanic that we have been had and gosh what a wonderful thing to lift from the human psyche is this terrible ship disaster mm -hmm. that really had all of us scared of ever ever traveling by sea and had all of those people who built ships and designed ships in total quandary as to how their ship didn't work mm -hmm. when their their engineering principles were sound they were very sound so we're i i'm trying to lift this veil and tomorrow's going to be a lot better day than it was today but i just like to say that the truth never suffers from an honest examination of the facts. Amen. So I, I've given you some facts. I've <laughs> given everyone some facts. Before you condemn me, take a look at those pieces out of the bottom of the Titanic and take a look at that debris field and take a look at the tear drawing from Wormwood. And I don't think you're going to want to condemn me after that. I think you're going to realize that Somehow they have done a real number on us. Yeah. You know, psychologically. I don't I don't know how they got us to believe that the Titanic broke itself <laughs> into two pieces in the act of sinking. I mean, there's a lot of people who feel the exact same way about jet fuel melting steel beams. I mean, how do you yeah. push the lie? But the media manipulation is just so strong and people are conditioned from kindergarten to only accept things from an authority figure. Authority figures have to tell you things all through school. They're infallible. And the same goes for the media. I mean, they're the authority and people just don't take in any information that doesn't come from those authority figures in the mainstream, you know, in a lot of cases. Yeah, we're a, a wonderful race and we're very trusting and they take advantage of our trust. Mm -hmm. They put it on a, a modern media, give it a, a new look and it's easy for us to fall for it. It is. They bring it right into the comfort of our own homes. They give us these high definition TVs like they really love us <laughs> and we believe it. We do. <laughs> Everything that comes through that TV is either to propagandize us or to keep us distracted. And it's one of the two things, and they serve really the same purpose, which is don't look at the puppet masters and the plans they have in place. Just go about your daily cog in the wheel life, the nine to five reality, and then, uh, you know, die as quick as you can, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Isn't that the truth? Oh, man. Well, there are just layers and layers of red flags to this thing. You make a really great case. I loved the book. I think it's so impressive. It's such a huge undertaking to even write the book and then to turn around and say that you're going to you know, be generous enough to offer that 
up free to interested people who get in contact with you. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Well, thanks for that. I I think it's time to start giving away what we can give away to humanity. And all of you people out there that have the design for how to convert water into, and make it burn, let us have that design, will you? Tell us what that frequency is, where that water molecule comes apart and separates readily. Those of you who have a free energy design, let us have it. Get it out there because otherwise we're, we're that's how we can win. That's how we can win. And mm-hmm. we need to win as a whole. And we, and, and that's, we'll all be winners. <laughs> Cheers to that. Well, thanks again for being here and take care of yourself. All right, man. I will. I will. I'll be in touch. We'll see what happens. All right. Thank you, Greg. You got it. Hallelujah, people. Kenneth M. Price Jr. A new face in this space and a fresh perspective on the influence and gameplay of the oil industry. I love it. I know we've talked about these subjects before, but I think Mr. Price brings a new level of clarity to it and expands it further than I've ever heard before. I think the narrative of parallel stories between the Titanic and Hindenburg makes a lot of sense. And if you think about the context of the time, and also you need to know the numbers and the viability of these other fuel sources, a picture starts to emerge. And another thing Ken said to me in an email after the show was that one ton of coal has the same energy content as 188 gallons of petroleum. He goes on to say, so people will know that when they lobby to shut down coal, they're really just helping the oil industry expand. I know we're told coal is so dirty and harmful, but isn't it possible that is propaganda? It doesn't seem worse than gasoline at all. I have charcoal toothpaste and a charcoal bristle toothbrush, for God's sake. And yes, there are other alternative suppressed patents for all kinds of exotic energies, but let's just get off on this level of the elevator today and realize maybe we don't have to dig that deep at all to find better alternatives. I mean, I know people who nearly drank themselves to death in high school and charcoal saved their lives. I am fucking around a bit, but I do have a little micro-obsession with this chapter in the conspiracy story, and I was pretty lucky to have Ken actually contact me. I get a lot of people contacting me to be on the higher side these days, and not all of them are of such quality, so it was a real pleasure to do it. I always get a charge when I feel like I'm helping a new voice get out there and a voice that I think knows their stuff. And this was sort of like getting insight from a wise grandpa. Is that weird to say? I I mean it in the uh, best possible of ways. All due respect. But people, how cool of our guest to offer up his book to you guys for free. It has been quite a while since we had an offer like that, and I think it is so worth it. It's very well written, and it goes much deeper than we could in just this two short hours of conversation. Do email him at explodedsteamship at gmail.com. It is an easy one to remember. I know a lot of you are driving right now, working right now. You can't write this down, but just remember, explodedsteamship at gmail.com. Let's make Ken feel like his work and insight is appreciated. It would definitely mean a lot to me. Not that you should have homework for listening, but, you know. 
As you know, there's always a second hour to a THC episode in this particular one. We talked about many more threads of the Titanic disaster that strengthened the case for foul play. We talked about Marconi's role during the Titanic disaster and his later role in investigating UFOs for Mussolini and how these things might be related. Ken also dropped some not-so-subtle hints that oil might not be what we're told it is and that there are some conspiratorial threads to the TWA Flight 800 crash. We also got into who the guilty parties really are here and how the Jesuits might be connected, as well as, of course, J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller. We got into Ken's thoughts on the Federal Reserve angle. Of course, you can't talk about the Titanic conspiracy without bringing up the Federal Reserve angle. I think both Ken's angle on how this worked for the oil industry and the Federal Reserve narrative can work, but the Titanic is obviously much more closely associated with energy and those motives that Ken presents. The Federal Reserve is obviously just as big of a deal, but it's sort of a disjointed motive. But these plans of the elite are often very layered. Why should this be any different? We then got off the beaten path a bit and talked about what Ken knows about the secret space program and UFO tech, why the global warming narrative has been so aggressive when it does seem to contradict the fuel selling agenda of the elite, and last but not least, the idea of a global cash reset and how likely that might be. So fun stuff today. This closes out the month of March, the month of my birth, and I think I'd give it pretty high marks. Cosima Danaritzer, The Light Bulb Conspiracy, Planned Obsolescence. Good to get a female voice on here. It can be a bit of a boys club. I hear the critics. Also the critics that I don't have enough black voices either. And that might be true. But a decent amount of the time, I don't even know what race a guest is beforehand. And Lennon Honor doesn't answer my emails anymore. Maybe it's the weed thing. Anyway, obviously I want this to be a show for everyone. So don't worry so much about that stuff. But show number two, we have Brian Forrester. I felt like this was a great one. The Paracus, elongated skulls, and other weird stuff. Brian's answers were way shorter than a usual guest. Sometimes I ask only five or six questions in a two-hour show. But this is why I write six pages of notes when I usually only need three. We got through a lot of material, and I don't know, I think that's a beautiful thing. It was a fun one. Pretty rapid fire. Adam Kokesh, Libertarianism, Self-Government, and Dissolving the State. This one got some attention. Some thinking that I'm right, some people think Adam's right, but I think the fact that we can disagree and still be cool was actually a rare thing to see in 2017 in a political discussion. People like to hear a guest challenged a little bit, which I never do feel super comfortable with, but it has been noted, guys, I promise. We grow and we evolve, right? So the disagreement aspect might have been interesting to some, and I got a lot of emails saying, oh, well, you need to read this literature about libertarianism, or you need to get this guy on to better explain it, or maybe I can come on and talk about my group's version of libertarianism. And I feel you. I know that there are a lot of opinions out there and ways to look at it. But one thing that does sometimes bother me is when people think that I couldn't just possibly have a different opinion, it's that I haven't read about it enough, or I haven't gotten the right person's perspective. Yes, that's true sometimes, but other times, it's not that a person doesn't see the light, it's that they just disagree. It's not always about convincing people. 
But besides that, I really want to be done with politics and shows about anything related to the left-right spectrum or some brand of political ideology. I'm a little fatigued. I think I'd rather talk about religion at this point, and I can't believe I'm saying that. But <laughs> I do think that that point was kind of proven with the next guest, who was Michael Joseph, dissecting elite belief systems and their influence. I think this was the standout of the month, besides tonight's show, which I also think is right up there as new, useful, and unique. Some people did get really mad at me about that episode. How can you say the elite are good? And I did not say that. And it's not really even about that. Come on. You know me. It's just about maybe we don't know everything. We hear people talk about life as a stage and we're characters in a play and this idea that we chose this experience before we came here. And if that's true, it's true for everyone, isn't it? People who play villains in a play, regardless of how real it seems, aren't bad people, are they? It's not an introductory idea, and it's definitely a controversial one. And maybe it's just some bullshit that they believe. But even so, if, if that's the case, I want to know about it. I want to consider it, and I think we should be open to at least seeing every angle without a knee-jerk emotional response. That is the higher side way. And it's really my safety net. It's my escape hatch. Because I know that I can't be positive that everything and anything a guest says is right or true, I can't. There's no way. So I find voices that I think are entertaining, of course, and have varying degrees of merit, and merit for various reasons that aren't always on the surface. Sometimes I let people ramble on for a long, long time just because I want them to say one or two specific things. Whatever. But I just try to steer these voices to present their best self their best case. And I might tell you to what degree I like a particular perspective, but I don't try to claim to be an authority. And listeners are always urged to make up their own mind and often hear conflicting perspectives. That's fine. There isn't a lot of debate on THC, of course, but that's how I rectify that is by getting conflicting voices to make their own cases. And then you can listen to both shows and see where you lie. So when people question my credibility, it's like, credibility on what? I am not telling you what to think. But maybe that alone is suspicious in 2017. Either way, I love you guys. Please, please, please consider signing up for THC+. Plus If you like what I do, I'm getting married in July. And not that that's anyone else's problem, but it is a thing. And people have gone through it might catch my drift. $5 a month, five extra hours of interviews come on over to the HiresideChatsPlus.com. Also, you might have forgotten about Hireside Clothing. J.P. Morgan and the plot to destroy the Titanic do take center stage on one of the new designs. It's definitely a personal favorite. It looks like one of those old political cartoons. A lot of depth in that image, I will say. Check it out if you might want to rep such a conspiracy from your radiant chest. But that's it for me this week. Your move, oil oligarchy and robber barons of the energy quarantine. Your fucking move. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class. But they've overcome their shyness. Now we're calling.
They destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect Between the only people left Who'd even look them in the eye Now they laugh and make a fortune Off the same ones that they tortured And a world screams Save me, THC Called the blood 